that's nice. Some nice gospel proclamation there, especially as we come closer to Easter, Good Friday. Uh, we are going to have a service this this year, Good Friday, at David's house. We did that last year. Went really well. And so um, this year it'll be at David's as well. And then here for Easter, and then we'll have a potluck after Easter. And I think in the back, right? Or in the kitchen here. So I haven't even ever seen the kitchen. I don't I didn't even know it worked, but they are gonna let us use it, and so things are looking really good for that. So uh, make sure that we're all here and having a good time. Uh, yeah, that's what last last year we did the picnic. Remember that? Willie brought the chili. We had a good picnic last year. So this year we're just we're we're moving the meal till after the service. So all right, Mark chapter nine today, verses thirty through thirty seven. Let's pray for illumination, and then we'll look at this. Our God, we come before you now. Holy Spirit, specifically, we pray that you would help us open our eyes, illuminate our minds. We know that we cannot understand the Scriptures apart from your help, so we we call upon your name now. We pray that you would give us us eyes to see the majesty of Christ in this, and and also especially uh, our responsibilities in light of Christ. We pray it all in his name. Amen. All right, Matthew, or excuse me, Mark 9, 30 through 37. Now, uh, this is, we're, we're beginning a new, a new section here because 30 through 50 is a, a, a section that is dealing with what the community of God is to look like in light of Christ's sufferings. And so we really haven't had this yet. We haven't really had any kind of ethical formation as far as how we as God's people are to live and, 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 and act amongst each other in light of Christ. We've, we've seen a lot of who Christ is. We've seen His power. We've seen what He does, what He came to do. We haven't really seen any kind of obligation as far as just following Him. Yeah, we've seen that. But as far as, okay, what does life look like now amongst us in light of who Christ is and in light of the fact that He's called us? And that's what you're, you're getting from 30 all the way to 50. And the, really the, the, the words that would be emphasized here would be humility, suffering well, unity, um, not not arguing amongst each other. You notice, so in verse 30, we'll read this in a minute, but go to verse 50. Verse 50 is the last verse of this section. In Christ, the very last part of verse 50, you see he says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. He says that, assuming that at this moment and in the future, there'll be times when there isn't peace among each other. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to say that. It would be, it'd be, it'd be dull repetition. So 30, though, if you, if you look at what's going on at 30, we're going to see some of this as far as why Christ has to say, guys, don't be arguing. Don't, you know, don't, be, don't be bickering. Don't be, have unity, have peace amongst each other. Okay, verse 30. From there he went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them. And taking, taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Okay? So now, what are we dealing with here? We are dealing with, okay, first of all, there's two sections here. The first section is 30 through 32, as they're going towards Capernaum. They're not in Capernaum, they're going towards Capernaum. And ultimately, all of this walking around, they're going to Jerusalem. Ultimately, Christ is going to, it's going to, of course, culminate in his crucifixion. So they're on the way. But if you notice in verse 30 and 31, they are going around, but it says specifically, um, he did not want anyone to know about it. About what? Well, the fact that they're walking around. The fact that Christ is here going to Jerusalem. The fact that Christ is Messiah. This isn't new. We've seen this before. It's the idea of the messianic secret. You know, Christ doesn't want the word getting out that the Messiah is, has arrived because of everyone's false notions of what Messiah means. People have a, a, a wrong notion. And so if you have a wrong notion of what the word Messiah means and the word is getting around that the Messiah is here, it's not going to be very good because it's the wrong notion. And so along the way, Christ is teaching. You see that in verse 31. It says he was teaching his disciples because they have to be, they have to be formed 
emotionally, theologically, ethically, as we'll see today. Everything, these, these guys are, are raw. And they're, they're mistake prone. And we've seen, this all, we've seen this throughout the life of the disciples. These guys are not, they're not anywhere near where they need to be. And so Christ needs to spend some time with these guys, training them, teaching them. And that's what you're having here, okay? What it means to follow Christ. He's still teaching what it means to follow Christ. And along the way, he gives this thing that he's already said once. He's going to say again. So there's three times total in the life of Christ where he gives these, these, these prophecies, specific prophecies regarding his death, burial, and resurrection. He says that here in verse 31. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. He says this on three different occasions, very clear, very obvious. If you read it, he, it's, it's black and white. This is the phrase back in Mark chapter 8 that when Peter heard it, he goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, come here for a second, man. <laughs> come here. You got it all wrong. I, I heard what you He made it so clear that Peter recognized, okay, what you're saying is total nonsense. Jesus. You, you can't be saying that. And that's, of course, when Peter turned, or Jesus turns around to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan, for you have your mind on the, on, the, on the things of man, not the kingdom of God. And so it's the same thing here. Jesus specifically, explicitly, black and white, says, Look, guys, this is the case. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. I'm going to be killed. And after I've been killed, I'm going to rise three days later. So we've seen this before. This is the gist of what he's saying on the way to Capernaum. Okay, Verse 32, it says they did not understand the statement. How do you not understand this statement, right? I mean, this is amazing. He's been saying the same thing for an entire chapter straight now. I mean, you're talking like six or seven straight scenes where Christ has told them the same thing. Even on the Mount of Transfiguration, as they're coming back down. Remember, as they're coming back down, it says... Uh, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. I mean, these guys are just like, what is this guy talking about? They can't figure this out. Christ says it again, and they're like, man, what's this guy talking about? But now, you see the difference. Now they're afraid to ask. Why are they afraid to ask? When you think of Christ, do you not think of Christ, and this isn't necessarily wrong, <laughs> But do we not think of Christ? I mean, we just said it, saying it. You know, Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Right? We think of him as approachable. He is approachable. Amen to that. We should always be approaching Christ. This is the problem the Roman Catholics have. Whenever they install Mary as a mediator, they install Mary as mediator because they feel like Christ isn't quite approachable enough. That's wrong. That's an extreme that's unbiblical. When you have phrases like this, when it says they're afraid they didn't ask him, it's not because Christ is necessarily not approachable. It's because every time they've gone to Christ about this in the past, Christ has doubled down and made it even more explicit. This is exactly what I mean. Remember Peter, Peter, Jesus, you got it all backwards. You can't, you can't, you can't suffer, you're the Messiah. You can't die, you're the Messiah. What are you talking about? Jesus turns around and says, Peter, listen. Not only am I going to suffer and die, but you're going to suffer and die as well. He doubles down on it. And so there's something like that that's driving this. It's, it's, the, it's the phrase, ignorance is bliss. I don't, don't ask him about it, because if you ask him, it's just going to get worse. It's just going to be harder. Counting the cost, unless you hate your mother, father, sister, brother, everything else, right? I don't want to hear that. So let's just not ask them. Let's just kind of keep it to ourselves and not ask them. Something like that's going on, okay? And also, there is a real sense in which Christ has shown some frustration with these guys. Look back over here in verse 19. And he answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? He did just say that. And there was that boat ride a couple scenes back where Christ says, Do you have a hardened heart? Do you not yet see or understand? Having eyes, do you not yet see? Having ears, do you not hear? So there is the idea that, okay, he is. He is a little frustrated here. You have this in the Old Testament. Here's the thing. The God of the Old Testament is the same God, the God of, the New Testament, of, of the God of the New Testament, right? But you have a God who is, whenever we continually... Sin over and over and over and over again. God responds to that, does he not? In Hebrews 12, it talks about how God disciplines the one he loves. He chastises us. He doesn't just overlook our sin, even though we're in Christ. Not to say our sins, we're going to be judged for our sins. We know Christ has been judged for our sins. But it's still, 
It's still to say that, that, that God is a holy God, He's a righteous God, and there's a, God responds to unbelief. He responds. He judges unbelief. And so the same thing here with Christ, right? But again, it is, don't, don't think that Christ is not approachable. He most definitely is, and, and we are always called to go to Christ. Christ, even, right? Christ is the one who bids us come to him, come to him over and over and over again. So the fear thing here, it's, it's, more, it's more involved than, you know, oh, Jesus has these, these red eyeballs, and he's got this, this really fiery demeanor, and we can't, you know, we got to walk on eggshells around him. Well, to, to a certain extent, because of their unbelief, yes, but when you're talking about us and our mediator and our elder brother, it says go to him. And we can go to him with boldness and confidence, knowing that he's going to hear us and take care of us and rule over us because he is our king. Okay, now, here's the thing. So they finally get to this house in verse 33. And this, this picks up the second, second section. And this is, this is the primary section that we're dealing with. Verse 33, they came to Capernaum. Who's from Capernaum? Peter, Andrew's brother, James and John. They're fishermen. They're from Capernaum. This is where it all began. They're in Capernaum now, but this is, this is the, last, the last stage in Capernaum. They're headed south. They're headed to Jerusalem, but they're in Capernaum. They come to a house. You assume they're probably at Peter's house. That's where they were in the beginning. That's probably where they are now. They're in Peter's house. And when they're in the house, he begins to question them. Now check this out. He's questioning them in order to teach them, to bring forth some kind of teaching. He always does it. Remember when he asked the, 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 the disciples, who do people say that I am? He knew who people were saying he is. He wanted them to tell him so that, they could, that he could turn around and use it as a teaching moment. Remember when he fed the 4,000? Where are we going to get enough bread for all these people? He knew where he was going to get bread, but he wanted them to respond. It's a teaching moment here. He asks in verse 33, what were you guys discussing on the way? And your translation, rightfully so, should, should actually say, what were you arguing about on the way? That's the word. What were you arguing about on the way? Now, here's the irony here. And it's sad, I think, in a sense. As they're walking on the way, Jesus is over here talking about his death, his humiliation, his suffering, his sacrifice, the things that he's going to have to undergo. And it's not pretty. It's gruesome. It's going to be horrendous. It's going to cause Christ, the night before he's crucified, to be in the Garden of Gethsemane, his capillaries are rupturing because he's in such dread and terror of the following morning when the, the wrath of God is going to come crushing his head. He's talking about this, his suffering. And while he's talking about his suffering, you see what the disciples are talking about. And not only, they're not just talking about it, they're arguing about it. They're arguing about this. Peter, you're not going to be, what do you mean you're going to be the greatest? Now, you know probably what kicked all this off, probably, is that Peter, James, and John were the three that went on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so maybe they're thinking, well, wait a minute, man, in the kingdom of... And who knows? I mean, there's no way to know. Maybe, um, you know, was Peter flaunting it? You know, or, we don't know. I, I, I'm not saying he was, but who knows? But they're arguing back and forth. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God? In the kingdom of heaven? Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the best? Who's going to be the first? That's what they're talking about. What were you discussing on the way in verse 34? They kept silent. They know better. That's why you keep silent. Man, he caught us. They were ashamed. Here's the thing, though. He is, what, what's, what's going on here is these guys, see, here's the thing about this, and this is so important for us. They have, not, they have not yet embraced the consequences of what it means to follow Christ. And we know that as far as their suffering goes, we know that when it comes to their suffering, they haven't fully embraced the fact that if you follow Christ, there's going to be reproach. If you follow Christ, there's going to be consequences, bad consequences, sufferings involved. People are going to come against you. I was thinking of the example of, you know, in our culture today, and this is the, this is the way for anybody. If, you, if, you're in a, if you're a Christian and you get around your family who's not Christian and you actually stand on the Word of God or bring up something, heaven forbid, you bring up something about the Bible, you know how it goes, right? It's tense. There's a lot of bitterness. I mean, you know how it goes. It's just awkward now. You got this. But this isn't our family. Now you go to work, same thing happens. You're, you're uh, obligated to hold to certain values and principles, especially if you're, you know, like at a, at a state university or if you're something, in, 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 maybe just teaching in general at a public, a public setting, right? If you're in the public arena at all, you know how it goes. 
If you're a serious Christian, and you're trying to be a serious Christian, you're trying to walk the walk, you're trying to do what's right according to God's word. If you're, think of this, if you want to go into politics and you're going to be a serious Christian, you're never going to make it, I promise. Now, we want Christian politicians, and by all means, go for it, right? We, and we'll, we'll support every, to every extent we can, but you know how it goes. If you go into these things, and you're sincerely, uh, you know, sincere about your Christianity, and upfront about it, and outspoken about it, hey, this is where I am, this is what I stand on, you know you're not getting very far. That's not a bad thing. That's just the reality of our culture. Things might change. Things will change eventually. And we should definitely press forward, you know, keep your foot on the gas pedal and go, go all the way. But here's the thing. We have to realize ourselves that when we follow Christ, it comes with a cost. It comes with a reproach. It comes with ostracism. But here's the thing. Now, that's just, the, that's just one part of it. I'll give you something I think is even harder. That they have... They have definitely not, it's not even on their radar. And I don't think, I don't know if it's on our radar a lot of the times, but it's certainly harder. And this is this, okay? Following Christ does not just entail reproach from the world, but it requires and entails service, sacrifice, humility, considering others better than ourselves doing all that we can for our neighbor, right? That's a lot harder. You know, you can get, I, I don't know about you, I feel like I can get, I, I could care less, you know, being reproached, being a reproach and, and whatever. But it's a whole nother case whenever it comes to, okay, now you need to sacrifice time, you need to sacrifice emotionally, you need to be invested in people's lives, you need to give out, you need to give yourself to people. That is hard work. That's, what they don't get yet. That's why he says not even on the radar, right? They're talking about who's going to be the greatest. Who gets to lord it over everybody else? And then Christ, this is what he's dealing with. This is why in verse 34, not only are they holding their peace, now look what it says, they had discussed which, with one another which of them was the greatest, but verse 35, when Christ sits down, and whenever you see someone sitting down in that culture, you know, sitting down is a... It's, a, uh, it's, it's like when we sit down in our culture, you know, it's just, hey, we're kicking back, we're going casual. You know, you'll see, you'll, see some, you'll see some pastors today, you know, they'll sit down in their stool or whatever, and they're trying, to be, they're trying to be very welcoming. And they're trying not to be too authoritative, you know. In Jesus' day, it was the opposite. When you sit down, it's the opposite. When you sit down, you're, 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 about, to, you're about to speak in an authoritative way, in an authoritative sense. So he's sitting down now, but before he does... Let's think about this culture, okay? Because this is the thing. They're not, they're, not necessarily, uh, they're not necessarily being inconsistent with the culture they're in. So in other words, when they're discussing who the greatest is, this is the Jewish culture of the day. This, this was very common. Who's the greatest? Um, the Jewish ethos, the culture, the environment, is an environment of rank and honor. Your status, your rank, whether you're first, who are you at the com- in the community? Where do you sit at the table? Even when it comes to sitting at the table. You remember in James, even in the synagogues, right? You come into the synagogues, and if you're a man of wealth, right, we need, come on, we need you, right? You sit in the front. Okay, you, yeah, you got a little money. Why don't you sit maybe right here? And then if you don't have any money, right, you just kind of like, Hey, we don't, you're just a peon. We don't, you know, you are, you're nothing. We don't care about you. And you see James dealing with this, right? When somebody comes in and they have a lot of money or they have status or they have this and that, and if you treat them differently than you would somebody else, well, then there's a problem. But this is that culture that they're living in. When you go to the courts, same thing. If you have money, if you're of status, right, you're, you're treated a little differently in the synagogue at the city gates. That's where the rulers were, the judges. And so all of these things, there's partiality, there's favoritism. But here's the thing. As you're hearing this, right, this is, our culture is like that, but on steroids. And this is why this is so important for us. Because what's the American culture? What's the American ethos? You have to be somebody. You have to be of some status. The, the whole notion of, let's say, social media, the whole idea there is, 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 is to be something within that little bubble of, of people. 
I mean, that's really it, you know. So in other words, it's not bad, by the way. I think that there's, there's, there's welcoming, there's ways to do it, right? You're, you're promoting good material. You have things that you're getting out there. Media in general, technology, okay? Not all, all bad, but we know, look, greed, pride, ambition. You have to be someone. You have to be powerful. You have to be successful. Popularity, social media likes, followers, all this. Selfishness. Think about this. If you think about just... The, the sheer volume of times that people will speak of their self, my, it's my life, it's my body, it's my, it's my day, it's, it's, you know, look at, look at abortion. The whole premise of abortion, most of the time, like 99% of the time in my, in my experience, maybe Logan's the same way, I'm assuming, right? Most of the time, 99% of the reason people get abortions, because it's an inconvenience, it's going to get in my way. This baby's going to get in my way. I'm trying to be somebody. I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to get to there. So I got I got I have to murder my own child because I have to do this. I have to be this. I have to right? So our culture breeds this this idea. Divorce is the same way a lot of times, right? Divorce. Well, it's, you're not making me happy anymore. You're not as funny anymore. You're not as pretty anymore. It's selfish. It's a selfish culture. It's all about me. It's all about what I want. And, and then, of course, you have the self-reliance of, of the, the American myth in general. You know, as far as why? Pulling myself up by my bootstraps. I don't need God. I don't need the church. I don't need you. I don't need anybody. I can do it on my own. I'm self-reliant. I'm self-dependent. I got it all taken care of. And it's weak for me to need help. It's weak for me to, to reach out for help. It's weak for me to go to somebody and help them. You see that? That's our culture. That was their culture. And so here's the thing. It's all about status. It's not. It's all about who's first. It's all about rank. And here's the thing. Here is the thing, I tell you. Okay, you see this in the church too, right? We've got to have a big church. We've got to be somebody. We've got to have influence. We got, here's the thing though. When we look at all of this, we have to realize... This is not just an American thing, and it's not just a Jewish thing. If you look at ancient Greeks, ancient Rome, any civilization in the entire history of humanity, wherever the gospel is not, you find this exact motto. This is the mindset. This is the default position of a fallen world. It's all about me, and it's all about power, and it's all about success, the Greek and the Roman cultures, it was about being strong, being good-looking, being wealthy, being powerful. It's about conquest. It's about violent overcoming. It's about ambition. Those are virtues. And so Christ has a seat. He sits down. He's going to teach them a thing or two about this, this, this new society. The, the kingdom of God, and what it's, what it's going to be like in the kingdom of God. And so he sits down here, verse 35, and he calls the twelve, which is huge. That's so important that he calls the twelve. This is the new Israel. There's a reason why Mark put that. This is the new Israel. This is, this is What he's doing here is he's about to give them the new ethic, the new social formation, the new pattern of society according to the Word of God, according to God's law, according to the kingdom of God. This is, this is the new ethic. You guys are operating according to this way of thinking. Let me straighten you out. Let me give you the real sense of what society should be like as far as our, our, the kingdom of God goes. Okay? He sits down, calls the twelve, and he asks them in verse 35, if anyone wants to be first, or he tells them, if anyone wants to be first, which means a ruler, a person of authority, a person of rank, a person of status, if you want to be special, he shall be last of all and servant of all, which is basically telling them, you will, if, you want to, if you want to have this, if you want to be this, then you're to have no rank, no power, no authority, no influence. Be it, you're, you're to be a nobody. We're going, to, we're going to bring out some of this in a minute. Okay? But here's the thing. Look at, uh, look at chapter 10 of this same book, Mark, verse 43 through 45. He says, but it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you. See, in verse 42, he says, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. 
But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant or slave. Anyone have slave there? Not supposed to use that word, but that's what it's talking about, slave. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Now here's the best part. Because this is, the, this is the danger of this. See, here's the thing. When you're, when you're speaking in this way, this can very quickly become moralism. Be good for the sake of being good. You know, it's, it's the kind of stuff, um, go, well, and not to, you know, going back to Joel Osteen, or, or even like Jordan Peterson, right? It's that kind of stuff. You know, be good, be your best, do your best, treat everybody the best you can, and that's it. And if that's all you have, that's moralism. Jordan Peterson can say that. You know, everybody says that. You're, I mean, who, who doesn't say that, right? Be your best, treat everyone really nice. Everybody says that. But here's the thing. There's two things to realize this. Number one, this is a Christian ethic, as we'll point out in a minute. It's not a, it's not a worldly, it's not a, an ethic that the world comes up with. It's a Christian ethic. Number two, though, is this. Here's the thing that keeps this from being moralism. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The reason we are called to do this is because Christ himself has done this for us. You see that? That's why it's not moralism. This is where all the energy is, all the power behind this, the purpose behind this, the motive behind this. The motive is not just to be nice because so-and-so told me to be nice. The purpose is, the point is, is I'm to serve each other. I'm to serve others and be a slave to others. And be nice to others, yes, and kind and everything else, because Christ himself did this. And so if you look at places, turn with me to Philippians 2. Look at Philippians 2. Christ, when he comes to earth, it tells us exactly just the, the, the lowliness, the, the humiliation. Of, of Christ when he comes, and it's in the context. So look at verse 1. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, notice the, the theme here is unity. Unity in the body, unity in the church, considering others better than ourselves. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit. When you read through Paul's letters, the emphasis is always on unity, loving each other. United in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now that could just be moralism, right? But once you get to verse 5, it becomes a gospel thing. Why are you to do this? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He had this attitude. He existed, verse 6, in the form of God, which means that He is very God of very God. He is the one surrounded by angels, being worshipped by angels. We saw in Colossians 1. He is the one that upholds all things by the word of His power. He is the one that keeps everything in place. If it wasn't for Christ holding everything in place, everything would be scattered in a millisecond. There would be no more universe. There would be no more solar system. There would be no more human being. Christ is the one keeping all the fabric of the cosmos in place right now as we're here, sitting here. And yet, having the worship of angels, having the worship of creation itself, all things made for Christ. What does it say? He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be utilized, a thing to be exerted, an excuse to say, no, I'm not going to do this. But, verse 7, emptied himself. Meaning he laid aside his privileges. He laid aside the claims that he could have made regarding himself. He didn't lay aside his divinity. Rather, he took on human flesh. And then think of this, when Christ comes to earth, you know, you think of all the things that Christ, all the patterns. I mean, can you imagine in the wisdom of God, you're thinking, okay, when I come to earth, what am I going to be? What status am I going to have when I come to earth? What rank am I going to be born into? Am I going to be born to nobility? Am I going to be born to, let's say, Caesar's household? He could have. Am I to be born in a palace? Am I to be born with wealth? Am I to be born of maybe one of these high priests? Maybe, one of the, maybe born in their house. But he's not. He's born to a carpenter. He's born in some insignificant city, in Bethlehem. In a manger. In a cave. And there's a reason for all of that, right? And then, get this. 
get this, he's actually born a child, a baby. As we'll see in a minute, a baby has no worth. A child has no worth. So here's the thing. When you look at this, it's not as though this is just bare moralism. We're looking at this, and Christ is forming, creating this ethic because he himself has exemplified this and is in the process of exemplifying this. And so who are we to look around and say, well, I'm not going to serve these guys. I'm not going to be humble and, and, and consider, consider so-and-so better than myself and, and lay, lay down my life for so-and-so. Why would I do that? So-and-so's, you know, this or that. And he's saying that you have no right. We have no right to look at anybody that way because we ourselves don't deserve the treatment that we've received, the good treatment, the kind treatment, the, the, the humility that we've received from Jesus Christ. And so here you have it. Now, before, here's the thing. When, when uh, you know, when you go to college, or, or really, actually, even, even if you, you don't go to college, you go to a bookstore, everybody loves Friedrich Nietzsche, right? Not here. But in the world, where, you know, Nietzsche this, Nietzsche's this brilliant, brilliant. No, and I'm, you know, and I've read a ton of Nietzsche. And here's the thing about Nietzsche. Here's the, it's, it's, it's you know, think, talk about tragic. But, but here's the thing. You know what Nietzsche hated about Christianity? You know what he hated about it? And you know what a lot of worldly people outside, and let's say in that camp, you know what Darwinists hate about Christianity? You know what Darwinists can't account for in Christianity? Or actually in, in general, at all, not just in Christianity? Here's what Nietzsche hated, disgusted by Christianity. Because it exalted sacrifice, altruism, pity for the weak, renunciation of self, Humility, those are the virtues that Christianity brings. Service, sacrifice, suffering, altruism, laying out for another person. And then, not only does it bring that into the fold, but it says this. What Nietzsche hated about it is that Christianity brought these virtues and these traits to a world historical status. So that now it is abnormal, which is totally inconsistent. The unbeliever, think of this, it's abnormal now to look around and not pity the weak. And that's a good thing, right? But here's the thing, if you're an unbeliever, if you hold to something like Darwinian evolution, when it's all about power, it's all about might, it's all about conquest, it's all about who's the best in reproduction and everything else, right? Well, then what's going to happen is that you're, you're going to have no, you, you don't have a basis for why. You should be kind. Why you should be generous. Why you should be patient. Why you should be humble. Why you should have an altruistic mindset. Why? Why would you? You see someone crossing the road and they're in their wheelchair, you know, and they're just barely struggling to make it on. And you know what the best thing, according to Darwinian evolution, would be? Wipe the person out. Let's get the leech off the, off the map and let's just make society better. And, you know, the, the strong's going to survive. Get rid of everybody who's not strong. Get rid of everybody who's not. Who's not Powerful and mighty and wise and all these things. Christianity comes along and says, no, no, no. No, you got it all backwards. And the reason why, see, we have to realize this. And I'm going to read this quote. What was, what was life like in the, in, in the garden? The life in the garden, what Christ is doing is he's restoring what the ethic should have been all along amongst human beings. The interaction, the society that, that should have always been there before the fall. This is from Abraham Kuyper. He says this, If the foundation of society is provided in creation, pre-fall creation, in creation, in other words, what's the default position before the fall? Kindness, love, serving each other, sacrifice, gentleness, self-control, considering others better than ourselves. That's, that's the default position at creation. The foundation of society is provided in creation. And if sin has deformed the edifice of society, right, now it's about me, now it's about mine, now it's about power, now it's about might. What does Adam say? The second, the second they, they fall, God comes in the garden, the cool of the day. You know, he's walking in the garden. Hey, Adam, where are you? Well, Adam's hiding. And then he comes out and they start throwing fingers at each other. It's your fault. No, it's his fault. No, it's their fault. There you have the... The society that everything is going to be built on today. Right? It's right there. And so, 
here's what Christ comes in. Then Christ comes not to establish an entirely new kind of society. He's not creating something entirely new here. But His kingly authority rather extends in order to restore the original, to correct what has become deformed, to perfect the unfinished construction. Does that make sense? When Christ comes and restores, this is the beauty of all of this. Christ did not come mainly or primarily, or is certainly not merely for your individual salvation. He didn't. He came for your individual salvation, yes, to reconcile you to God, yes, but in reconciling you to God, with that comes an entire transformational concept that Christ brings about. He's restoring society itself. He's restoring the fabric of what it means for me to be a person engaged with relationships in my society, in my family, at home, at work. How I interact with people at the marketplace, wherever I am, I'm interacting with people differently than I was interacting with them. I'm seeing them differently. I'm treating them differently than I would have before I was in Christ. And the only reason, if there is any, to an extent, where nowadays you have, why are women elevated in our society where in this culture they weren't? Christianity. I mean, that's, you know, handicapped people. It's not a virtue to go around and pick on people who are handicapped. We look at that and we say, man, you're a monster. Why? Christianity. That's not, that's not, I mean, that's not natural. That's not a Darwinian ethic, right? Darwinism says crush those people. Get rid of those people. Stomp on those people. Do what you can to snuff them out. They're harming society. They're not bettering society. Christianity says, no, wait a minute. No, these people are made in God's image. So when Christ comes along, and He is, He is, this is a new ethic, a new pattern of behavior, but in a sense it's not, right? This is the original mold and make of, of how things are meant to be. So don't think, here's the thing. He's saying it's not a don't guys listen. Listen. When they're all coming to him, he says, he's got the 12 in front of him. He says, guys. It's not about being better than somebody, about being the best or being the first. It's not about being greater. And there's so many more examples. For the sake of time, I'll, I'll, I'll just skim over them. But here's the thing. He's saying, look, if you want to be, be great and powerful, and if you want to be first, you know what it takes? Look at verse 36. He takes a child. He sets the child before them. He takes the child in his arms and he says to them the next thing. What's up with the child thing? When you see a child, a child is adorable, a child is cute, and they are. I'm always taking pictures and sending videos, right? These children are beautiful. They're, they are. But here's the thing. Do you realize that in this culture, in the culture that Jesus lives in, a child, when he, this is a live parable, a child in the Greek and Jewish society, they had no sentiments about a child. They didn't see children as cute and adorable and wonderful and lovely and all that. They weren't taking pictures. The child was insignificant. The child was the last in society. And the reason for that, there's a few reasons, but number one, there was a high mortality rate. So just emotionally, you had to protect yourself from the reality that your child is probably not going to live past the age of five. So you're not going to be real attached to your child. It's just, you know... Emotionally, that's a, that's a defense mechanism for your emotions or whatever you want to call it. Also, there was a great demand for child labor. So you know that, hey, my, you know, my child needs to be in the workforce at a very young age. There's just not a lot of sentimentality when it comes to children. They're, they're even, in fact, in, in this society, they're behind women. These are the least significant in the entire society. And so think about what he's doing here. When he takes a child, sets the child before him, what is he saying? He's saying, guys, this is you. You want to talk about who the greatest is? This is you. If you want to follow me, here's a child, the, the least in the entire society, the most insignificant person in this entire society, this is you. The Aramaic word for child is also servant. And he's just been talking about being a servant for everybody. Here's a child, same word in the Aramaic, Christ spoke Aramaic. Unless you become like this child, he says in Matthew 18, this child is, think about a child. A child is under orders. A child is under rules. A child doesn't pick what time he gets to eat. He doesn't pick what he eats. Doesn't even get to pick what he wears, really. Right? You might give him some options, but it's not like you're giving him the catalog and just, 
giving them a hundred bucks. I mean, the guy is under orders, or the girl. I mean, these children are under orders. They don't have a lot of say. They're not driving. So they, they have no pretensions for greatness. Have you noticed this about children? They have no pretensions of greatness. They have no pretensions of being somebody. They don't have any ambitions of being great and being known and being well-liked and being popular and everything. Maybe well-liked, of course, that's natural. But you, you get what I'm saying. That's not their motive for doing things. And so Christ is pointing out, you know, this is, this is the thing. What is a child, now in this culture, again, a child doesn't deserve anything, they're insignificant. Here's the thing, think of Mephibosheth. We talked about Mephibosheth last week. He's crippled, he's broken, he deserves death from David, but what does he do? Can you imagine if Mephibosheth came up to David, David said, hey Mephibosheth, man, I want to really do something nice for you. Mephibosheth, he's like, you know what, of course you're going to do something nice for me, I deserve something nice, even though I'm crippled and I come from the enemy king, and right? If, we, if that were to happen, we would say, you know what, this guy deserves to be taken out. I mean, that's the height of ingratitude. That's monstrosity. That's that. What is that? Here, David doesn't have to be nice, and David's going to be nice. Well, I mean, and then the guy's just taking it for granted and acting like he, he, he deserves everything. And we say, man, that, that, what is that? But that's exactly what we do. That's exactly what the disciples are doing. When they're going around talking about, hey, I want to be great. I want to be this. I want, you know, I deserve this spot. I deserve this place. I want this rank. And Christ is saying, guys, do you realize that it is the mere fact that you're part of this kingdom in the first place is a gift of grace? You have done nothing to deserve this. You in yourself are of no worth, of no value, of absolute, absolute insignificance. And now you're talking about rank and status and who's the best and who's this and who's that? What is that? And so he's correcting their mindset. And he says, whoever receives one child like this, he's talking about the disciples. The disciples are ambassadors. They're emissaries. And he's saying, in my name. Notice this qualified there, in my name. Whoever receives one child like this, in my name, receives me. And so here's the thing. Here's the catch, though. He's saying, although, yes, You are insignificant. You are of no status. You are of no worth. But here's the thing. As you go out, because you're going out in my name, here's the paradox, you do have worth. You do have significance. This is what marks the kingdom of God. Service, looking out for others, thinking of others, taking care of others. When you're a servant for the king, here's what he's saying. Far from being ignoble, you're to be received and thought of of much worth because you're of the king. And so, bringing all this home, bringing all this to a close, this is what we have going on here. Okay? When you are speaking of the kingdom of God, what Christ is doing, He's recreating the proper relational conditions for Christ's followers, for the church. Christ, again, when He saves us, He saves us into His body. He saves us into His church. He doesn't save us. Does that make sense? So, in other words... Christianity in America is unfortunately very independent-minded. You know, Christ saved me, it's all about what Christ does for me. When in reality, that's part of it, but in reality when Christ saves you, He saves you into a body, into a church, into Him, into Himself. And so now the very fabric of our social dynamics is changed. And that's what he's doing here. He's recreating the proper relational conditions for this. He's reorienting the way we think about rank and success and power and influence and status and what it means to be somebody or not be somebody. And and here's the thing. When you look at Christ's life, what does Christ do? When Christ comes to earth and everyone is seeking out Christ, do you know what Christ does not do? He doesn't stand around and say, yes, guys, come on. I'm going to really fan the flame so I get everybody... Just really hype up this this popularity that I'm getting, you know. Everybody's starting to realize I'm of some rank and of some worth and I have some some power here. Yes, right? What does he do? He runs. He tries to hide. He's like, guys, quit telling people, man. Calm down with this. Because you right, there's a lot of stuff that has to take place first. He doesn't, he's not out for notoriety. He's not out to, to be somebody. And so that's what's going on here when Christ is telling these guys, listen, it's not. Christ never sought popularity. He always tries to avoid it. And, and, and here's the other thing, too. It's not to say, you know, in the kingdom of God, there are successful people. 
successful people at their jobs, successful people at home, right? We want to be successful. We want to be, we want to be very effective parents. We want to be effective at work. We want to be good at what God has called us to do. He's not talking about that. He's not saying, hey, if you're, if you're this or if you're that. Let's say in the Air Force, right? In the Air Force, you have certain... He's not saying, hey, you are not allowed to be this rank if you're in Christ. He's not saying that. He's saying, what is the motive? What's the purpose behind all of this? What should the kingdom of God look like? This is what it should look like. People out to glorify God. In whatever sphere and however, whatever God has given them to do. I want to glorify God and I want to serve my, my fellow neighbors. I want to love you. I want to love others. I want to that's that's it, right? And that's my motive. And in the process, if God brings success or if God brings influence, if God brings popularity, you can't, you know, I always think of the we call them celebrity pastors, right? And you have and the thing is, yeah, you get this, it's funny, right? You get the same eight guys speaking at every conference in the United States of America. What is any kind of any anytime there's a reform conference. You get the same eight guys. But you think about it. That's not necessarily their fault. They're good preachers. They're good at what they do, right? God has used them in mighty ways. So it's not their fault. But it's to say this. When they first started out, or even now, right? If they're out there looking for this, then that's a problem. If they're out there just saying, hey, I want to glorify God. I want to do my best for God. An opportunity, a door is open. And I'm, I, you know, I want to take advantage of it and do my best for God and to serve others. Okay, right? But you see the opposite. It's another thing if you're saying, hey, I want to have a big church. So in order to have a big church, because if you have a big church, you're going to have influence. And in order to do that, this is what we need to do. We need to, we need to water down the, the doctrine stuff. We need to go easy on the sin part. We need to have a lot of fancy this, a lot of fancy that. And then in the process, hopefully the end game is going to be we have influence and we have popularity and we have fame and everything else. You see the difference? Completely different. And that goes back to the selfish thing. That goes back to me trying to be somebody for myself. And that's what Christ is saying. These guys, you guys are doing that. That's not okay. And then let me end with this. Some, some really, this is, and this is, this is genuine encouragement. This is what's neat about doing all of this, about looking at the Scriptures in this way. But, but here's the thing. When you tie this into this church specifically, and then you realize... This is what's neat about all of this. There is no one person in this church who is over any other person. God has, Christ has arranged the church with a certain structure. So you do have overseers, right? You have people who are called to oversee the church. But it doesn't mean overseers are somehow more significant or more important than anybody else as far as this, this concept of being in the, the kingdom of Christ. And so here's what you have. In this church, you know what you see? You realize that, man, this is a full-functioning, full-orbed body of Christ that is dependent upon every single person in this church. That is the beauty of a church plant. If you're in a church that's not a church plant, you can coast. You can kick your feet up, sit back, turn the cruise control on, just kind of go with it, go with the flow. Church is going to go just fine. You know, I mean. But when you're in a church plant, you realize every person in here is vitally, vitally, vitally significant. And, and you're crazy, right? There is no, if, if you have the mindset of, you know, being first or having this rank or this or that, man, we are way, way over our skis. And, and, and so that's the beauty of this. You know, just, you're talking, I mean, just the different ways everyone's pitched in. I, I, you know, you can go down the list and, I, you know, you got... We started out, we didn't have bulletins when we started out. Now we have bulletins, right? I mean, this thing is precious. I mean, it's amazing, right? You start out, and then you start realizing things. You take things for granted. You know, you go to most churches, and they got these fancy, nice, you know, colored bulletins, this and that. You go to, and then you, you're like, man, that's a lot of work. And I can't do it. You know, I got this going on. Eric's got a tongue going on. And then all of a sudden, somebody, somebody's heart, you know, I'm going to make a bulletin. What? It's like gold, man. Yes. What? You know, you wouldn't think of it, but it's, it's gold. And then, I mean, it's amazing. And now, of course, with the, uh, this time last year, financially, you, you know, as far as organization goes, we're like, man, who's, 
what, what, we, what, what does it mean to like take book, take a book, take books? What do you mean we got to write all this stuff? We got to write this stuff down. What is this about? Right, and then and then lo and behold, God brings people that know how to do that. I mean, and this is the thing, right? And then and then, you know, people open in their homes. We didn't have music. Now all of a sudden, we got people that play the piano and sing and all. I mean, this is and it's not just that. I know there's so much more, but this is the point, right? I mean, every single person involved in this is is. There's nobody who's more important. This is not my church. It's not Eric's church. This is Christ's church. And to the extent that you're going all out, and I understand that, look, you know, a lot of us, a lot of you might not be here in five years. I get that. But here's the thing. When you're serving God's people, when you're serving God's church, you're glorifying God. It's not about, well, what am I getting out of it? You know, what do you mean i got to take the trash out? What do I get out taking the... Well, God sees your work. You're serving people. You're serving God's people. God sees your work. I remember Pastor Joe. Y'all know Pastor Joe from El Paso. Probably, by the way, one of the most humble men you'll ever meet in your life. But he, you know, this guy marries his wife when she's quadriplegic, that kind of humble. He'd been with her for like 30 years, I think, 40 years. But, but this guy, you know, I mean, that's the thing. And he, he really just really hit home the fact that when you are working and no one sees you working, no one sees you taking out the trash. No one sees what you're doing behind the scenes. No one sees you making the bulletins. No one sees all, whatever you're doing. You know, when you're cooking, people bring in treats all the time. Nobody sees that per se, but God sees that. That's the point. That's, that's why it's worth it. Not to get something from it, you know, not to be known or recognized, but because you're serving God and you're serving God's people. That's the point. And that's what you have here. That's what he's trying to bring back, really instill into these folks that, listen, this is about God, and it's about Christ, and that's it. And that's it. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for Christ. Thank you for this, this, uh, this reminder to us. Lord, please give us grace. Lord, help us to have this mindset, this attitude that, that, that others are more important than ourselves. Lord, we know it is difficult. It is time-consuming. It's emotionally draining to invest in people, to pour out our lives for others, to sell out for our children, to sell out at work, to sell out for each other in this church. Lord, it's, it is tough, but we thank you, O oh God, that, that you see our labors, you see our work, and that it is worth it. Lord, give us grace today as we come to your table, Lord. Thank you for the grace you've given this church, the body you've given this church that you've brought together. Help us, O oh Lord. Help us to have this mindset. Conform us to the image of Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. All right, turn with me.